and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Mark and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. We are coming to you live from the shores of Mendocino's Jug Handle Creek Farms. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for today. And as usual, I'm joined by my favorite chemist and business partner, Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, Nigam. Hello, everyone. Also joining us again is Dr. Amber Wise, the Science Director at Medicine Creek Analytics. Welcome back. Good afternoon. And joining us for the first time, longtime listener, first time guest, Teresa Simon, a public health epidemiologist, founder of Physicians Research Center, which specializes in research, education, and data analytics. Hey, hello, everyone. Great to be here. Thank you. And also a New rookie on the show, Dr. Harry McElroy, a functional regenerative doctor with a focus on plant-based therapeutics, including psychedelics and cannabinoid-based treatments. Welcome to the show. Hey there. Great to have everyone. Well, listener, we have a very special show for you today as we are recording this podcast live and in person at Jug Handle Creek Farms in the historic giant red farmhouse. So as usual, first up, we're going to play a game and Dr. Wise will test your knowledge about cannabis testing regulations across different jurisdictions. For our second segment, Nigam will lead a discussion on an article about a viral tweet that has us questioning whether alcohol consumption rates will fall drastically in the coming years, just like smoking tobacco did. And third, we will discuss a peer-reviewed article on the receptorome in psychedelics. What is the receptorome? Well, you'll have to stick around to find out about this article that suggests we should rethink much of the data around psychedelics and perhaps have a little more humility around the use of these substances. All right, listener, we'll be right back in 30 seconds with today's game. Now it's time to play today's game. Amber, take it away. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, well, this was put together yesterday morning in the sun uh, in the backyard, and it's based on a paper that our good friend David Valancourt sent me. The title of this research paper, it was uh, just published a, a week or two ago in Environmental Health Perspectives, that's September 2022. And it's titled Comparison of State-Level Regulations for Cannabis Contaminants and Implications for Public Health. Uh, it was a collaboration between Arizona State University and a couple of testing labs out of California, CannaSafe and CLIP Laboratories. And um, so essentially, the paper looked at four different categories of testing for cannabis products um, and compared all the different testing requirements in 30 di 37 different states. So the four categories were pesticides, uh, metals, residual solvents, and they grouped microbes and mycotoxins together. So they identified 37 states and jurisdictions, meaning uh, 36 states and Washington, D.C., that have some medical and or adult use recreational programs. So with that amount of background, um, I will go ahead. Round one, each person gets a true-false question for one point. We're going to start with Nigam. Bring it. The authors of this paper found that 28 of the 37 jurisdictions required inorganics or metals testing. True or false? 
All 28 jurisdictions include the big four, which are cadmium, lead, mercury, and arsenic. I feel like there is, so this is, I don't have uh, all 28 sets of regulations in front of me, unfortunately, or fortunately, but I think um, there are a couple states that have some like shocking misses for testing. So I'm just going to go ahead and say it's false. I bet one, I bet there's a state that does not have all of the big four. I'm going to say false. The statement is true. So of the 28 jurisdictions that require metals testing. I'm happy to be wrong on that. Uh, yes, yeah, so they all include the big four, and a few states have a couple extra uh, metals mm. or inorganics um, category. All right, moving right along. Jehan, you are up next. Oh, boy. Fusarium mycotoxins, which are prevalent oh. contaminants in several different agricultural commodities, were not regulated by any jurisdiction. True or false? Well, I do try to get as much of that bacterium into my diet as possible. Um, so... I normally like to stay away from one or zero, but I would say that um, if there's an opportunity to not regulate something, uh, the regulators might take that opportunity. So I'm going to say that it is true that it is not regulated. You are correct. For one point. That's why I have a PhD. <laughs> All right, uh, Teresa. <laughs> We're going to stay on the Fusarium theme here for one moment. So the Fusarium species and their mycotoxins, this, this is the statement, Fusarium species and their mycotoxins have never previously been found in cannabis plants and CBD products. So based on my knowledge as a mycologist and as a microbiologist, Fusarium is a fungi. Okay, so I'm going to say that that's probably true because there are other... Um, fungi and mycobacterium that are found in cannabis, but I don't believe I've ever seen that fusarium is one of them. That is false. Oh, Someone oh, has oh, uh, found some in cannabis and CBD products. So, <laughs> so there is some evidence out there to suggest that it might be present, but no jurisdiction is currently testing for she it. She should get a point because she knew what species or, or kingdom it belonged to. <laughs> Half a point for Teresa. <laughs> All right, Harry, true or false? Cannabis growing has more compliance testing requirements than any other agricultural commodity in the U.S. I'm going to say definitely true. They're heavily regulated, different state to state. Uh, I grew up in Indiana. I don't think that Flint corn uh, had a lot of regulatory uh, competition. So I'm going to say yes, true. You are correct. It is the most, most... Compliant? No, it has the most regulations of any agricultural commodity. That is true. That's a direct quote from the paper. All right. So moving along to round two, the format will be everyone will guess a number for two points. And we're going to do prices right rules, which means you can't go over the number. And you could you can also guess zero or one if you think everyone else is going to be a little high. Okay. First question. Out of the 37 jurisdictions that have regulated cannabis, how many of them require some sort of pesticide testing? Hmm. I mean, ideally, you want it to be 100%. Was that your guess? No. (laughs) But Amber, this includes like, I mean, these states, it's like highly variable. Oh, that is one of the main points of this paper, yes. Yeah, so... (laughs) 
We're looking for a whole number between zero and 37. What about imaginary numbers? No. Okay. 30. I'm going to say 30. Nahum's guess is 30. Who's next? Well, you know, that, that is a good guess, but I'm going to say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go half as much. I'm going to say 15. Jehan at 15. Teresa. I'm going to be a little more optimistic and I'm going to go with 22. Okay. 22 for Teresa. So, so basically, thirty-one. If it's is the winner, if it's above thirty-one, I'm gonna I'm, I'm going for it. Doubling down. Pesticides? Any pesticides? So like any pesticide testing regulations? But these are both. This is both adult use, but also medical or adult does, use. Does, does this include like pesticide testing, where they just give it to their friend and see if they convulse? That, no, that is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> these are some sort of lab needs okay, to run some 30, sort of 31. test. I'm doubling down. You're gonna go thirty-one. I mean, Harry's guess is thirty-one. All right. Well, the answer, everybody, is exactly 31. Ringer, ringer. Nice work. I never should have invited you to the show. <laughs> Usurping me. All right. So, second question. Relatedly, of these 31 states that have some sort of pesticide testing, how many pesticides appear on all 31 of those state lists? But, like... That they overlap with testing. Yeah. How many total pesticides? Oh, oh. The, the other, the other thing I was going to say was they found a total of 551 pesticides total okay. were named by these 37 different states. And you can imagine, not every state requires 551 pesticides. So, of those 551 pesticides, how many of them appear on all 31 state lists? So, what was common across all 31? Yes. The number? Just the number. I'm not asking you to name pesticides. I know some states have quite extensive lists. Some states name entire categories. Correct. So um, that's a little... So some of those states are going to be pretty low-key. So I found this data. This was not directly in the paper, but the supporting information they had available. And I just looked at the supporting information myself. I'm going to say 12. All right. Guess. Nigam's guess is 12. Gary's going to beat me. I'm going to say five. Harry's guess is five. This is not categories. Just compounds, individual cast numbers, yes. I know this is not an option, but I would say less than 10. So I guess I'm going to have to say... You can guess anything from zero to 551. Oh, yeah, seven. Lucky seven. Number seven for Teresa. So we have five, we have seven, and we have 12. Not very high numbers, folks. So, you know, much like heavy metals, I believe that there are like the big 10 pesticides, the big 12s, you know, certain categories I don't want. So I imagine there'd be a lot of copy pasta going on with the regs. So like bad ideas in the regs spread very quickly and everyone adopts them. So I would say, uh, not that pesticide testing is a bad idea, but I think people just copy pasta stuff. So if I was to say, take a guess, I'd say it's probably closer to like, you know, in the dozens. So, you know, um, I'm just going to say, you know, it's called an even C note, even hundred. A hundred compounds appear on all the uh, different uh, states. Is that your final answer? Uh, I want it to be. I really, really want to believe that there are the possibility, but um, 
I'm going to say 20. 20. All right, folks. According to the supplementary information, the answer is zero. Oh, wait. So here, here you want to get, though. <laughs> I don't think anybody gets a point for that. Point. Wait, wait. So then no state tests for the same pesticide. That's, right. That's what that means. Correct. So according to the supplementary information, only four compounds appeared on 27 that. lists. So the most number, like 27 out of 31 states, had four compounds in I, I, I understand. You know, I guess I, I, I feel that in reality, though, there are exceptions that regulators allow groups to use pesticides. They just have to test them. So, that's, that's, right. I think, the point, is, I think she, the point is, I think the point is, when they say they tested it for pesticides, your response should be which ones. Yeah. But I also think that there could be categories of pesticides, right? So I think that we didn't really talk about the categories, what they fall into. Correct. But there were, according to the paper, a handful of states that did not actually call out any compounds at all. So it's like make up your own list according to the lab, I guess. I'm not familiar with all the state rules. So great. So uh, guess the number one more time. Um, in addition to comparing all the different regulations state to state, the authors also screened a very large, well, relatively large number of legal cannabis samples um, within California. And uh, I believe two different labs were part of this. Um, so they tested uh, flower samples. They tested extract samples. What percentage of products, according to the author's testing, exceeded California's regulatory action limits for any contaminant? Come up with a percentage number. Percentage number. All right. Well, of failures. Uh, you know, Nigam, you've been going first. I don't know if you want to keep the good times rolling, but um, so products that f- kind of tested positive for any contaminant. Any contaminant. It, not above a certain level, just any contaminant. Just any failure, not not a detection, but a f- exceeded the regulatory action limit. Um, I would say a hundred percent with a one percent margin of error. Um, <laughs> Um, the, how are these samples acquired? Do they say? Uh, I do not recall from the details of the paper. I think they are in the paper, but I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I am going to go with 70%. 70% failure rate. All right. Anybody else? How many samples were tested? Uh, over a thousand. I don't remember the exact number. Okay, I should so, have it in so, front of so me, but it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Enough to get some good statistics, yeah. I'm going to say there's also this thing where things will get tested and then they'll get remediated and then they'll, so it's not like an end all be all. So I'm going to say, I think a lot of stuff fails testing. 30, you guess, Jayhan? 70. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll go half. 35. But I, I, I'm a bit critical of the thing, you know. 35%. 35% is Nigam's final answer. <laughs> I was going to say 50. Teresa, final answer? 50%. Harry. I would say, um, so if I, if I, I want to not go over, I'm going to say one. One percent. Well, because if I want to be, I really want 34. <laughs> but if I do 34 and it's 27, I lose. It's what happened last time. So I, don't, I don't understand the strategy of the game at all. I just say whatever so cold-hearted up, number. too young. I like grew up with Price is Right, Bob Barker. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah. I know the strategy here. One is Harry's final answer. All right. The answer, according to the authors, was 5.1% failure rate. Wow. I am impressed, California. Good job, everyone. And they broke down to 2.3% failure rate for flour and 9.2% failure rate for extracts. I believe that's like an average of the two. In all those jurisdictions, 
Uh, no, in, according to the California regulatory uh, yeah. action limits, I believe these samples all came from California. Um, they had to have some bar to, to measure things for. All right, we're going to move on to the final round for three points with a bonus point for naming both states. All right, so a total of four points. The score at this moment is Jehan one point. Yeah, Nigam yeah. has one. No, Nigam has zero points. Teresa half a point, <laughs> and Harry with five points. What? Oh, <laughs> right. us. So this is the final question. You get four total points if you name both of the states. You get. I'm going to go with two points if you name one of the states. Name one of the two states that had the most product recalls related to contaminated cannabis products. And the dates are June of 2020 through October of 2021. So um, I've read mostly about Pennsylvania. Okay. And I think we were talking and someone said Nebraska had none. So so there we go with that. So I'm going to say Pennsylvania and... Any legal state. I know, I'm thinking. <laughs> New Jersey. Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Great. Who wants to make I, the next guess? Just because I'm afraid someone else is going to say it. I'm going to say California just based on I mean, market. you can all guess the same state. Oh, oh okay. I mean, right. But I would just say just based on market and, and the fact that California, I think, does whatever. They probably take the testing more seriously than Oklahoma. I don't know. So I'm going to say California. Sticking to it. California. One state? Two states for four points. You can win it all. Um, I don't know anything about Pennsylvania, but I'm gonna. That was a smart thing. So I'm gonna say Pennsylvania. All right, California and Pennsylvania for Harry. Well, yeah, I don't know if Pennsylvania really counts. They did have some recalls, but it went to like the Supreme Court, and it turns out that like, yeah, they can just sell whatever they want. It doesn't matter what's in it. So, um, at least that's what I gathered from the newspaper. Um, so. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with an an oldie but goodie. You know, one of the veteran states is Colorado. I'm gonna go with Colorado. You know, they've they've they they probably love their recall plans out there because they enforce them, and, and I think I see them pretty regularly. I seem to remember one state in particular had some big issue with like mixing up a THC and CBD product, like the label on it. And I want to say it was Washington State. I feel like. Uh, you know, the mile high city, Denver, and, and like the Emerald State of, you know, Washington, you know, it's like, I feel like they, 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 those would be my guesses just because they have like programs with robust testing and stuff. So, yeah. Colorado and Washington for Jay Hunt. Nigam, your two guesses. I'm going to say California and Michigan. California and Michigan. All right. Well, the answers are Colorado and Michigan. <laughs> So wow. we got two points for Jayhan, two points for Nigam, and we still have Harry as the winner with five points. All right. <laughs> um, I did want to add just one quick commentary there. This is not a direct correlation to you know how safe any product is in any given state. Um, Washington State, to Jayhan's point, has never had a product recall because, in my opinion, there's almost zero enforcement yeah. over the regulated space there. So. As someone who does actual product testing in Washington state, I would not say that because we've never had a recall, our cannabis is necessarily any safer than a state that has had more recalls. It's a direct correlation between how the state regulates and who enforces the testing rules. And one of the major points of this paper is that the, the regulations are all over the map. It's a hot mess. 
And I would like to say here to wrap this up that there are a number of groups that are working on getting some testing standards harmonized across the states. Um, so, you know, hopefully we won't be having these conversations for too many more years, but hopefully that was a sort of insightful and fun way to talk about this paper and compare and contrast the wide variety of testing requirements across the states. I encourage you folks to uh, look this paper up. There's some great data in here that we did not get a chance to talk about, and we'll have a link to it on this episode's website. All right. Thank you so much, Amber. And we'll be right back with today's non-peer-reviewed section from the popular literature brought to us by Dr. Nigam Aurora. We'll be right back. Kacha Labs is a leading provider of cannabis and hemp testing with labs in Arizona, California, Colorado, Florida, Massachusetts, Nevada, New York, Oregon, and Tennessee. Kacha's network of accredited labs is a recognized leader in testing precision and speed, delivering results within 48 hours and implementing over 500 procedures and methods, all compliant with standards set by FDA, ISO, USDA, and AOAC. Call 833-465-8378 for more information and to arrange a sample collection in your market. Again, the number is 833-465-8378. And we're back. Time for the non-peer-reviewed section of the show where we peruse the popular literature. And today, uh, Dr. Aurora is going to lead us on a discussion about a tweet that went viral and has us all questioning whether alcohol consumption rates will fall drastically in the coming years and perhaps will look like alcohol like the way we look at tobacco today. Yes. So this story came out in uh, Demarge, demarge demarge.com, which I'm not like a big reader of this publication, but this is the whole point of our pop science section. You know, there are all these pubs and resources that discuss scientific topics through their own lens. So really the reason I want to bring this to the show, as Jayon said, the title is In 30 Years, society will look at alcohol like we look at tobacco today. So I thought it was just an interesting perspective on shifting landscapes in the kind of society's interaction with different drug substances. So um, I'm just going to rattle off a few thoughts and then kind of pass the mic. Uh, I have a couple of questions I want to pose to the group. So one thought is, for example, like they use the example here of uh, tobacco reduction. Now, uh, there's a lot less cigarettes being sold, a lot less cigarettes being smoked in the U.S., but um, I'm not sure if they're compensating for an increase in vape usage, uh, especially if they're compensating for use in uh, underage vape usage that isn't being reported in a medical system or healthcare system. Granted, are they tracking the sales point of sale for every nicotine vape cart, I don't know. Um, but I think there may be some statistics that are going under the radar in this. Uh, the larger trend that I wanted to talk about, though, was obviously in the context of the show, 
is because psychedelics and cannabis are a focus is these changes in use over time. So we're seeing the increase in cannabis use. We're seeing like with decram and the availability of psychedelics, we're also seeing an increase in psychedelics use. There's a quote in this article uh, where someone is responding. A lot of this is people on Twitter. They're just like pulling Twitter comments. Someone responding saying, yeah, people are using uh, less alcohol, but that's because everyone's doing other drugs, be that cannabis, be that psychedelic mushrooms, be that um, a different substance. So um, the quote said fentanyl. <laughs> yeah, the quote, thank you. Amber. I'm not sure if that's really the case. Well, look, it's, uh, yeah, some people want. It was hard. So, anyways, I wanted to uh, just first pass around the group and see are there trends that other people are noticing um, from drugs or substances that are being used more or less over time? And this doesn't have to be, you know. Uh, Last thing I'll say is that drug is an interesting term. Like I think about caffeine all the time. I think about, you know, high fructose corn syrup all the time. Like there's all Maybe these. Maybe you're addicted to those things. Maybe, well, actually. Thinking about them. I'm kidding. Well, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's actually funny because I, I don't use either one. Um, <laughs> but notice how I say use, right? Because I'll say this and they'll say, I don't use caffeine. What do you mean use? It's like, well. It's, it's a drug. It's a I drug. need it every day. Okay, so Amber, what, I'm super curious. What is your? Well, I have two. I have a slightly scientific, professional take on this, and then a bit of a personal take. Um, there is a little bit of actual data out there uh, on this, and it's a little bit mixed. Um, just a very quick search I did because I know that there are some numbers out there, and so I did a very quick search yesterday. And there's a study out of Washington State with Multnomah County in Oregon, the Oregon Public Health Authority. They surveyed young people in a couple different states over the course of many years, beginning just before cannabis legalization in those states and afterwards. And there's a large data set. It's like over 12,000 youths between like 18 and 25, I believe. Um, and they found that the alcohol purchases, um, sorry, the drug and um, cigarette use went down in both of these states uh, after cannabis legalization. Um, but there's another study that compared alcohol purchases before and after legalization in two states. So this was not a survey, but just looking at alcohol sales. And Washington showed a decrease in spirit sales after legalization. Um, Washington saw a slight increase. And the quote from that study that I, I pulled was, results suggest that alcohol and cannabis are not clearly substitutes nor complements to one another. So again, I'm just pulling out the cannabis and alcohol relationship here. Um, but personally, you know, I can kind of see both sides of the coin in terms of, yes, I, we think people will reduce their alcohol use in the coming years. I mean, it's obviously a straight poison. And I can see that a little bit. I live in a liberal, liberal area. Cannabis is legalized. It's trendy to have non-alcoholic cocktails that cost the same amount as regular cocktails. It feels like it's changing where I live. But then I was just back home in Wisconsin last mm. month and drinks are insanely cheap there. It's still very much a dysfunctional culture in terms of their relationship to alcohol. And I don't see things changing there very quickly at all. So I think obviously there'll be more data coming out as more states legalize. And so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out um, in other places and not just some liberal coastal states. So that's where I'll leave it. Anybody else thoughts on shifting landscapes and drug usage over time? Well, many of us know how great 
alcohol is, but not many of us can appreciate the magnitude of its greatness. I just want to say, well, alcohol use, you know, rates seem to be going down. Um, and people are like, cannabis and hemp can save the world. Alcohol has actually saved the world multiple times, saved us from Giardia and worse contamination pyramids built by people drunk on beer. A lot of the ancient architecture in Italy built by people drinking wine. Show me a building built by someone using cannabis and I'll show you a hut built out of hempcrete. So, <laughs> but, so I would think that this might just be a passing fad right now. Um, you know, maybe people haven't developed their chops. Maybe it's, it's some of the marketing and alcohol that doesn't appear to people. But and there also might be a lot of sales um, that we're not tracking. I definitely think non-alcoholic use is going up because um, mocktails are half the price of alcohol. And a lot of people probably drink at home. And you, you go and get things that you can't get at home, which is a good tasting mocktail or other type of beverages. Or you meet with people at these locations. So... Um, I think I definitely prefer to drink, you know, my wine at home because I don't want to pay a lot of money for a bottle at a restaurant. So I think like some of these things, I don't think it's just simply attributed to cannabis use, uh, fentanyl or shrooms as um, snarky generally, uh, the Twitter user wrote. Um, but I think that it's just about, there is probably just a cultural shift right now as people are adjusting to these things. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there needs to be much more data longitudinally to see what happens. I mean, they might really love alcohol in 10 years from now. Uh, you know, it might go skyrocketing. We don't, we don't know. Once you add cannabis to it. Yeah. <laughs> so coming from the epidemiologist, um, the first problem is, is we don't collect the data. So we don't really know. We collect the data. Every time you go to the doctor, they ask about alcohol use and tobacco use, but we don't ask about anything else. And I think that that lack of, of a systematic data collection, you can survey any group of people that you want and try to get the answer that you're looking for. So I agree with Nigam. They didn't say anything about vaping, which I think is a big gap in this because we don't know. And vaping is not good for you, right? So whatever you're vaping. And then uh, for alcohol, I think to... To Jayhan's point, it's here to stay. And everything in moderation. I have a motto about no matter what it is, everything in moderation, excess in anything, you don't know what the long-term consequences are because no one's measuring it. So we don't know. So if you don't measure it, you can't answer the question. As, as one of two Hoosiers at the table, I felt that the, uh, the statement from Wisconsin about uh, dysfunctional alcohol uh, uh, culture was a little judgy, first of all. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting because this, from a clinical perspective, um, I think a lot of times, you know, 10 years ago, it's like, oh, one glass of wine, two glasses of wine, get some resveratrol, you're having some stress reduction. And I think there's probably still some truth in that. Do I think that if alcohol was invented today, would it be regulated 100%, right? Just like caffeine would as well. Um, based on you know how it, how it changes the mind and body, I, I will say that that there is a component like alcohol is not good for the microbiome, like full stop, period, right? And so that causes more of an imitation for picky gut. This is what's propelling a lot of the of the autoimmune um, prevalence or increase in prevalence across the country. So I don't think that it's it's good for you. And I would just say the the aside of that is like, well, what's going to take its place? And I think that cannabis is like very much like ready to take the place from, from, of alcohol from the standpoint of like stress reduction. Oh, do you want to have 
your five o'clock cocktail. And I've done this a lot with patients who so have a five o'clock cocktail, or do you want to take a couple of milligrams, not, not, not subperceptual, but like not nothing to put you on the couch and watching Netflix. Do I, do they want to do that? And then does that them lead them to not drinking alcohol? And like, that's been a kind of resounding success. I've even, even had some, one of my patients was a physician and um, was uh, having not a good Saturday and was going to maybe go have a panic attack essentially. Right. And so um, I, uh, you know, gave him the option, some pharmaceutical, but also said, Hey, why don't you go try one of these um, two and a half milligram mints and, and I'll write you the prescription as well. And let's see what's going on. So I called him the next morning and I said, Hey, were you able to get the prescription? And he said, yes, but I didn't take it. It was a very, well-known class of drugs, benzodiazepines, right? Um, and uh, I didn't take it because I got the mints and I took one and that really helped. And then when I started feeling anxiety come back, I took another one and that was it. So I think that cannabis, the way that it supports the endocannabinoid system and has such broad reaching effects um, really uh, is an amazing plant. But I also think that as time goes forward, as we are more, sleep deprived as we're eating more processed foods and all these other things like we have to kind of do everything we can to make our body function better and i think that's what a lot of the gen zers are like looking at um you know i don't need to be drinking alcohol to be social and have a good time and i think that's i think that's yeah yeah lots of people can be boring without alcohol <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> i do uh I want to, I thought this was an like interesting piece. <laughs> yeah. uh, I just want to say a couple more comments and then uh, if there's follow-ups, that's, that's cool. So these are just snippets from the paper. So one snippet is, uh, these are like people on Twitter talking back and forth to each other. So one person says, I only disagree because there are ways to drink alcohol mindfully and intentionally and in a way that elevate community and familial experience. There is no such way to enjoy cigarettes. And I thought that that was kind of like judgy of this person because it's like, you know, uh, it's just a very narrow minded. It sounds like this person grew up with alcohol in their family and they had some good bonding experiences. But who's to say that other people don't bond over other things, be that substance or no? It's like, hey, I bond playing basketball. Yeah, no alcohol. Fishing with my grandpa. I I, didn't drink with him. (laughs) Well, I mean, also, but the point is that they're mentioning a specific product compared to a class of drugs. So, like, you compare alcohol to a cigarette versus alcohol to tobacco. I would say, you know, ritualistic smoking of tobacco is something that goes back a long time in the United States down in like Native Americans. So, like, it kind of depends how you want to slice and dice, you know, the issue. I think, like, if you're like, there's no, uh, you know, community use of Marinol, but like you talk about cannabis use and see smoking joints and you could be like, oh yeah, I could see that as like that. That's there's definitely communities out there that support that type of behavior and stuff like that. So I think you have to be kind of careful about what you're comparing it to. Um, but yeah, I would say cigarettes. I don't see too many people bonding over cigarettes, but like hookahs, you know, that that's totally. So it's just, it's just, um, this was just a great example of, the internet. <laughs> it's a great example of why I don't have a Twitter account. Okay. Anyways, um, the other the other comment I was going to say, I'm kind of curious to get uh, Harry and Teresa's feedback um, on this one. Being a medical doctor, being an epidemiologist, um, like noticing these trends. Um, there's another quote from the article: 
Australian Bureau of Statistics data shows that less than 6% of Australians suffering from mental health issues were willing to cut out alcohol, even though it would improve their mental state. So I just thought that spoke loudly about, and you know, we have the psychedelics renaissance and, and it's often touted, you know, the benefits for mental health, this and that, which uh, we don't really have the, the time to debate here. But what I'm bringing up uh, again is like, well, I, I guess I, I'm really seeking Harry and Teresa's comments. What do you guys think about this thing about people in Australia will not give up alcohol? And, and how does that relate to the mental health? What do you guys think about that? Well, I, I appreciate doubling down on a bad idea, which is always <laughs> always a good thing. I, you know, I think this really speaks to the importance of culture, right, and how this can have an impact. <clears throat> Coming back to to like you know gut function and leaky gut, like like uh, gluten is is almost uniformly inflammatory, right? Now, a hundred years ago, when everything was great and we're like you know growing all this in Manitoba and and sleeping enough and um, having normal relationships and not traveling through time and space on airplanes, you know, we could accommodate for that. So you could maybe the, the, the benefits of the wheat germ and everything else was like without outside whatever information it had. I think now, and this is when you look at the prevalence of things like gluten sensitivity or, or celiac even, um, which are going right, you know, up like a lot. It's, it really speaks to the fact that like we are in a much more fragile condition, I think just candidly, um, culturally, but also as an individual than we were. And so then it becomes a thing of like, well, you know, and I have patients that aren't, don't have C-like, but have gluten sensitivity, like feel like bloated, feel awful, they break out, this, that, and the other, but they're Italian. And so they're like, listen, I can, I can cut this out for 29 days a month, but every month I have a family dinner and like, I have to eat gluten, right? What can we do? What can we do to kind of accommodate that? And so there are some hacks and some workarounds, but I just, I think that just speaks to me that, that and for kind of some good reasons, like in the importance of culture and community, that can be that can be such a positive influence in people that within that context, they can make some bad decisions. Yeah, so one hundred percent, right? So I, I agree with everything that you said. I think that for me, the most I, I'll go back to my little mantra that I teach to grade school kids about everything from soda to alcohol to everything, you know, everything in moderation. You want, but you know, good health starts with education. You need to understand what you're putting inside your body every single day. You're making choices. And we don't really have, you know, we have some data about everything, but we don't have enough data. You know, we just don't collect it. And when people start to collect this data as a routine, then we'll be able to have a little bit more insight. I mean, you have case reports, and I would encourage you to publish those case reports because it's important to get it out into the science community because they'll continue to do case reports. And the more case reports we have, because we're limited at a national level for cannabis, we can't do anything across the country. It's within the state. And so, but the more and more and more, then we do the systematic literature reviews and we can say, okay, look at this. There's this trend and there's actual documentation that this really is working because we do have a lot of anecdotal really case reports and I believe in it. And I believe that it's great for some people, not good for other people. And to your point to, you know, each person, their microbiome is different. They're in a different place, you know, uh, you have to treat each as an individual, as a physician. You treat individuals as an epidemiologist. I look at populations. Oh, that's super. That's super interesting because I do think that speaks to the fact that you know historically, what, what allopathic or Western medicine did so well 
it was the, this whole concept of like, you know, consumption a hundred years ago was tuberculosis. And we really did a bang up job of, of, of being able to get rid of a lot of infectious communicable disease. Now we're dying of consumption and that's high fructose corn syrup and drugs and, and, and other things that we're, that we're not using for our benefit, but really using to escape and, and, and having a lot of problems, you know, because of that. And I think that's crucially important, right? It's like, why are we using it? But this whole thing of like, are we gonna are we gonna look at, at population-based medicine, which is incredibly important, but are we also just gonna say, hey, everybody is totally different? And so from a personalized standpoint, whether that be epigenetics or whole genome sequencing, we really need to, to understand that like we need to look at that person in front of us, listen to them, right, and, and help them make choices based on that. One hundred percent. I mean, Jayhan and I were just talking about that, about testing individuals. Spe- and speaking of uh, individuals, um, I think it's uh, about time we move on to our next segment, right? That was a very mindful and intentional statement that is, in ways is elevating this community and familial experience. So we will be right back after a stiff drink for our <laughs> peer-reviewed section of the podcast. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. And we're back. Now it's time for the peer-reviewed segment of the show, and away we go. Today's article is entitled Psychedelics in the Human Receptorome. We have, you know, our gut microbiome. We have, um, we have metabolomics. We have all these omics field. There's also receptor omics. And so Thomas Ray, old Tom Ray from the Department of Zoology in Oklahoma published this paper about psychedelics. And he went into the NIMPDSP, the National Institute of Mental Health Psycho active drug screening program. You can play this at home. You can go to the website and you can put in drugs and screen, look at what they might interact with. And so he took available data. Apparently someone did some data work for him is not listed on this paper. Um, but this method was basically used to compare 35 drugs in a graphical and tabular form. Um, and it's basically kind of shows that psychedelic drugs are not as selective as generally believed. Um, that is like most of us think one drug, one receptor, one key, one lock, not one key that works at a bunch of different locks and kind of works at some, but opens the door sometimes, but not always. You really have to shake it to get it open the lock. Um, so, you know, the people are, are kind of arguing over what do these drugs do and, and can we really be have this predictive model like this serotonin dependent theory of psychedelics to work? Is it true? Are there other receptors? And much like cannabinoids, we've learned over the years that they are much more than just uh, cannabinoid receptors. There's other things that they can affect. Um, and so I kind of wanted to go around the room and get people's uh, impressions of this article um, that is published in PLOS One. Um, again, the author's name is Thomas Ray, and the title is Psychedelics in the Human Receptorum. So 
I would like to start with our new bees to the show. Um, you know, Teresa, coming down the plate, fastball for you. Uh, you know, what what stands out to you about this paper? What are what you know? I know that has a lot of like very technical stuff, some interesting graphs. But again, it shows these cool patterns, almost like Rorschach plots of receptors and, and what they do. So what do you see in, in this paper and what does it mean to you? Okay, so thanks, Jehan, for teeing up that this is not my area of expertise, not even close. Um, but, uh, you know, they do talk about evaluating receptor binding profiles for 35 drugs. Uh, figure one does 25 uh, where the assays. Figure two is 10 that they actually collected from the literature. So I thought that that was interesting. So it's not all run at the same time. Some of it's historical data. Um, I think that what's also interesting, uh, when I first read the paper, I thought, oh, wow, this is something similar to what's happening like with the Alzheimer's drug. And and I don't know. Yeah, the where uh, some researchers published a paper that no one could reproduce, but it was that paper that took off. And there's a big scandal now about it, that what we know about Alzheimer's disease and beta amyloid plaques may not be the end-all, be-all story here. Right? It, led exactly. to, it led to a lot of drug development. Exactly. And so here is something where they're like highlighting something that's like, oh, everything that we had historically might be wrong and there's something else that's new and different, right? So that's like the high level without getting into the, the details of it. But I think what's also interesting because sometimes it's nice to have a paper published like this because it helps researchers think, oh, wow, maybe there is something more. Maybe what we believed in before is not the be-all, end-all, right? But at the same time, when I further looked at this paper, it's a 12-year-old paper, right? And so what would really be interesting is to see what's evolved over the past 12 years. What where, Has anyone taken this and expanded it to either, you know, agree or disagree with this author's assessment? No, I think that's, that's terrific. You bring up a great point about um, what I'm thinking about is the promiscuity of these compounds. And, you know, we, I've always, what I tell students uh, to differentiate like cannabinoids and psychedelics is I always talk about CBD activating or stimulating or increasing the activity of 5-HT1A receptors. You don't want to go to the 5-HT2A because if you stimulate 5-HT2A, you'll be high for too long, like eight hours, because that's what, you know, if you look at the literature, they're the target of psychedelics. So, um, so I guess it's 5H2A or 2B or not 2A or not 2B. Um, <laughs> can't 2C me. Can't 2C me. So, so Harry, you know, you're, you have clinical experience. And I'm just kind of curious, always when these like big papers come out, like does this help you? In, are you like ready to like print this out and talk to a patient about it? Be like, look, we have to sit down and talk about your 5HT1E receptors. We really haven't discussed those in detail. Um, well, I, I do appreciate my drugs in tabular form, um, uh, as was mentioned earlier. I um, No, this would not be something. I think this really just speaks to the complexity of, of health and medicine. And I think, again, segueing from a, a, a real need base of the, you know, 100 years ago of like really figuring out these infectious diseases that were essentially affecting all of us uniformly, right? Um, I think when you then come into the nuance and so much of what's happening today, and this is what has been going on with like COVID, it's just like we have developed this underlying uh, immune dysfunction that's variable in every person. But I think that so much of what's happening is we have to look at the individual. And what this this tells me is really it's not just a one or a zero, right? There is a complexity of overlay, and that's inherently hard to study. And so you have people that are trying to get tenured and get published and 
you know, that doesn't fit into like the little square box. And so I, I think that there, there are some issues with, with the way that science is trying to succeed that are just diametrically opposed to what it is to actually be a good clinician and meet the person in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, as a conceptual theory, psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin um, working through the serotonin system is a great kind of conceptual model. But when you drill down onto an individual, they could metabolize the drug differently, which is completely unrelated to the receptors, right? Their liver could, they could like not process it and like a little dose goes a long way and that could be it. Or the receptors are just more efficient at getting stimulated or, or you know, they might have a mutation in the actual mechanism. But, um, you know, Nigam or Amber, Amber, you look like you're ready to comment. Um, you know, as someone who has sewn structures of chemicals into shirts, and, and <laughs> I like the one you're wearing today, which is kind of amazing. Um, when you look at this paper, are you like, yeah, you know, I really, I, when I, you know, I really like did a new theory of psychedelic interactions come to light or is it just like humbling to like look at these, these tabular forms of drugs? Well, it's, what's a little humbling is Teresa pointing out that this is a 12 year old paper and I didn't even look at the date when I was reading it. I was under the assumption we were picking new papers, Jayhan, to discuss. This. Well, I, um, I, I, my bad. <laughs> No, no, it's, no, it's fine. fine. No, but what that brings to mind another question that I didn't have until just this moment was, what do we know now since this paper has been published? Really, that was my point. yeah, mm-hmm. and and so, but you know, the the one thing that I highlighted, I have to say, this was a very dense paper. Again, not in my area of expertise either. Um, I did, I read the abstract and some of the intro and a bunch of the conclusion. Um, and so, what I highlighted was a quote from the end that said. You know, this study has revealed, again, they looked at a number of different compounds. They said the study revealed the specific compound DOI to be one of the least selective of all the psychedelics. Some of the literature on this compound may need to be reinterpreted. The same may be true of any studies whose conclusions rely on the assumption that psychedelics are selective. And you mentioned that in the beginning, Jehan. And, you know, this is a really groundbreaking type of thing if, in fact, this one guy was analyzing the data correctly. You mean old Tommy Ray from the Department of Zoology in Oklahoma? (laughs) And that was my other one complete thought about this paper was, you know, I don't know about papers with this much data with one author on it. I have the same bias. When I look at a big paper with lots of figures with one name on it, I'm like, those poor grad students get any credit for this. Like, or like, you know, did he really write this all himself? It's impressive. It just, just, it's like a yellow light for me. Could be totally true. This guy could be a rock star, just rocking a department of zoology and like tie dye lab coats and just like going nuts on this stuff. There's a lot of figures. There's, yeah. I mean, nobody doubled. I mean, I assume someone double checked his figures and they didn't get any recognition. Yeah. And then there's, there's, there's some other things. I look at this and like, he's pulling the tissue sources all over the place. Like some of it's like human, there's guinea pigs, there's rats, there's like vas deferens of mice. And I'm like, do I really need, to, like, I wonder about the translational potential of serotonin receptor activity in the vas deferens of mice to like clinical psychology, but maybe there's a gap that, you know, that I need to bridge there. Um, so, you know, Nigam, I know that you're a, you're a bit of a master communicator um, in science, um, you know, and you chose this article and it was great, but Amber, did you no, want to No, I just wanted up? to yeah. double, um, I, because I said this person didn't get acknowledgements for checking figures, uh, I would like to acknowledge Chen Mei Shu for preparing the figures for this manuscript in the acknowledgement section. There we go. So there we go. We recognize your contributions, Chen. <laughs> for sure. Nigam. Thank you, Amber. 
That did actually, uh, well, that reminds me of another thing from a few shows ago, but uh, I guess I'll comment on this paper that I brought to the show. So, you know, part of the reason I wanted to bring this up, and Amber, I appreciate you calling out, and Teresa, that this is an old paper, but part of the reason, so we like to talk about current things on the show. The reason I wanted to bring it on the show is because in the span of about a week, I saw three different people on social media pulling snippets from this article and talking about it and saying, oh, check out this fascinating psychedelics research and making comments and, and um, showing, you know, so much as you can show on social media, showing themselves as a expert on that topic. Well-read right? scientist. Yeah, so with a screenshot of one of these figures. And I saw it two, three times in a week, same article. So I don't know, I don't know why. Yeah, Teresa, are you going to say something about it? Yeah, I think, Nigam, it's because there's most likely no updates. Because I did a quick search on the DOI, you know, after I saw what the conclusion was, what recent papers are out there? Has anything, so really it's a gap. There's a gap that needs to somehow be addressed, maybe. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't really know because it's something that, I mean, you guys are the experts here, right? But for me, it would raise a flag. I want to look to see what's been updated. People, if people are citing this paper. To me, that means nothing's been updated. Well, judging by the technical like density of this paper, it might have just taken people ten or twelve years to, to <laughs> read it. Yeah, but I look to see how long because sometimes right. it says how long it takes the person and how old the data is. Uh, I was looking for that. But, uh, yeah. I think. Uh, I think that is a very open question. Everyone, so here's a mission for everyone listening to the pod. Uh, follow up on this for Teresa. Send us emails. So <laughs> I did want to, so uh, I want to speak to that just super briefly, and then I want to make a, a different comment. So super briefly, there. so this is a review, right? So a lot of this data was generated elsewhere, and it was compiled here in this paper. So I do appreciate the compilation. I do think the compilation is fascinating. Um, I do also agree that in the last 12 years, there's been a straight up explosion of psychedelics research. So a refresh on this would be also fascinating and to compare mm -hmm. what changed or did not. So I agree with all that from the prior thread. For a new thread, I want to shout out some drugs. Um, in particular, I want to shout out Salvinorn A. I want to shout out Morphine. Sponsor of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I want to shout out THC. Yeah. I want to shout out uh, mescaline. Um, so the reason I'm shouting these out is because these drugs are rather selective for certain receptors. Um, so that's cool, right? Because you can have a targeted use in, you know, uh, as a pharmacologist, you know, or as a medical doctor, having these targeted uses of a small molecule drug is helpful, right? It's specific. So I want to shout out some other drugs that are on the total opposite end of the spectrum that are super non-specific. They're hitting a bunch of these receptors. So uh, as Amber highlighted, DOI, which has been used, it's so, and they call this out very strongly in the paper, it's been used as this like gold standard for research studies interacting with 5-HT2A. And then they're saying, this is how we're going to study, and this is how we're going to probe 5-HT2A and the downstream effects. And the head twitch in the rat and all this. Oh, turns out DOI is one of the most promiscuous drugs. It's the, of 35 drugs, it is the third most promiscuous. Um, so smooth. 
But no one's validated, right? I mean, we don't know if that's true. Based on this paper, he highlights that this is new, right? He's saying DOI is so promiscuous, and researchers previously were acting like DOI was specific. But that's my point. And we're saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're saying the same thing. Totally. So the reevaluation is necessary. Um, Confirmatory, because he's highlighting something new, and we just need another confirmation of that. And one way I help with that is knowing the structural homology. How closely related are human, rat, um, guinea pig receptors um, and their level of expression in these tissues? So one of the th ways people use in, in cell culture, having a promiscuous compound, not, not really that big a deal because you can overexpress a receptor in a cell culture model. And so there's lots of that one target and you know it has a certain affinity and then you can knock it off that receptor. But when you go into like an actual living organism or primary tissue where everything's kind of expressed at a normal level, you're not like introducing viruses to overexpress receptor, then, then it becomes an issue and you start to see these, um, these issues. But I think um, you know, nature is kind of stingy in what it designs. And so when it designs something that works and works well, it's going to be replicated. And there's a lot of redundancies in systems. So the, the promiscuity you know, doesn't really surprise me. No, it doesn't. Right? And I, wanna, I just wanted to finish something on that thread and then I'm going to give Harry the mic that um, there's another table in here, table five, that they're talking about the... Uh, receptors in the receptors that interact with all the drugs versus not. So basically for both of these comments I'm making, I'm reading off these tables that for the drug and then for the receptor, they tell you which ones are promiscuous and which ones are not. So again, I just want to highlight 5-HT, basically all these 5-HT receptors that uh, psychedelics field is obsessed with, you know, rightly so in some regards, but they're super promiscuous. I mean, they're just right at the top of this list for promiscuity. 5-HT2B, 5-HT1A, 5-HT2A and 2C are in the top six. So these like heavily focused on receptors are super promiscuous, um, which moves back to Teresa's point. We need to learn more. We need to update it. And I think Harry had a comment too. I, I, I just, as a medical doctor sitting at a table with clearly a lot of esteemed scientists, I just, I, I'm going to make a non-selective comment that this stuff is like incredibly complex and nuanced. Doctors are very busy. They are absolutely at the whim of, of whoever says, hey, did you check out this study? And so then it gets furthered on and furthered on and furthered on to the point where we occasionally, you know, there was somebody who like that, that thing with, with Alzheimer's and having the plaque theory kind of be disrupted. I mean, that looks like that was an article in Nature in 2006, and it was falsified, right? And so, you know, at what point did we then look that nobody nobody else, you know, they weren't able to reproduce it, but nobody thought that that was flawed or problematic. And now you have, you know, billions of dollars of drug development that, you know, is, it's, I mean, it's, we, uh, we're doing some things right. We're doing a lot of things wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Like, do we want to go down this path of targeting the serotonergic system when, you know, that's just something that sounds cool to say, um, and maybe it's not actually accurate. Um, so, yeah, I think I think I worry a little bit about that with people moving forward and targeting these these receptors when, like, we're talk about like SSRIs and antidepressants, and maybe serotonin isn't that much correlated to mood. Like, I think people still talk about endorphins and the runner's high, even though there's lots of building evidence that that might actually be endocannabinoids influencing the runner's high like you get hungry and sleepy and you forget things when you after you like exercise a whole lot that is that sounds like cannabis to me maybe it's you know, like maybe that's that's the endocannabinoid system there so um but um 
you know, I want to say, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, I want to keep this segment staying alive by talking about table five. Uh, but, um, you know, Nigam, I thought it was some really good points about you bringing up those drugs. So, uh, yeah, I just thought, uh, really the, the biggest value I got out of this paper was just seeing these comparators, basically the stuff I rattled off and then the stuff Amber said about the conclusion, that was the biggest takeaway for me. I mean, you definitely could dissect every part of this and say, oh, well, then there's a million avenues you could go dig on, right, from this. So, and again, I just appreciate it being compiled. Um, but, but for me, it was a comparators. And also just it's kind of nice when um, I think, too, uh, for folks who, you know, live and breathe this stuff and do a lot of chemistry and do a lot of pharmacology and work with patients and work with chemical analytics and work with epidemiology, we all are touching this in some way, but I, and we say this on the show a lot, but it's part of the reason we do the show. I think this is so awesome for someone who's wanting to learn about psychedelics. I mean, I learned a lot from this paper, but even just like the intro, just displaying the different molecules, just displaying the different receptors. It's, um, there's so many valuable uh, learnings from this paper. And obviously we're sitting here, we're experts. We critique papers as a matter of practice on this show. So that's what we're doing. But um, yeah, Nigam, I love what you said there because that's the inspiring part. Like we're, we're old curmudgeons in this field and we're like, Hey, you get off of our receptor systems, like move it. Um, But you know, if I was just entering into undergraduate studies and I was taking science classes or I was looking at working in the lab field or graduate school and I saw a paper like this, I'd almost look at it like a checklist. Like, oh, I'm going to study these five drugs and confirm what they do. Because right now we're in like in between a wave two and wave three of science. Wave one was like, this is light. This is darkness. Gravity exists. Uh, You know, thou shall not create mass out of nothing. Like, and then there's just these absolute truths. And wave two was like, okay, everything's not really true. There's like this big fuzzy gray area. And now we're going into like wave three of science where we're like, wait, you know, those things we did one time and everyone takes his gospel. Maybe we should go like, it's like looking at the Bible and being like, let's like, let's take another look at like Genesis here. Uh, We might be some updates. Uh, Maybe, maybe it's like, you know, so I think part of that is what's going on here with science is that we need to confirm this stuff. And I think that there's so much here and it's, it's not a bad thing that these drugs, I mean, that might be why they work so well is that they have these diverse interactions across different systems, but making sure that it's reproducible and make sure we understand how they work, make sure the models are updated and correct. It definitely is promising. And the fact that there's this thing, the NIM PDSP, N I M H PDSP, you can just go, it's publicly available and explore uh, sort of a computational modeling of drug interactions. It's really fun. Pick your favorite drug, throw it in there, see what happens. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this segment, unless there's any more promiscuous comments. Um, thank you, everyone. It's been fun recover- recording live on a big wooden table in a big barn out on the coast of Mendocino. Um, I wish everyone could be here, uh, but uh, that's your fault for not showing up. All right. Thank you, everyone. 